Well, welcome to Coffee House Questions. This is Ryan Polly. One of the interesting conversations that I often get into is when you start to discuss the age of the earth, two very quick objections come up. One is, well, if the earth is old, then there must have been death before the fall. And that can't happen because God made creation very good. The other one is, well, well, then what about the flood? Was the flood local? Was it global? The, the Bible seems to be clear in discussing those issues. So we're going to take the next two shows and we're going to discuss in depth those two views. And hopefully my goal is to get you to see a different view. Now, I posted a survey on Instagram the other day um, to see what the majority of people believed. And based on the Instagram survey, about 88% of those that responded said they believed that the earth, uh, that the flood was global, and about 63% believed that there was no death before the fall. Now, this is kind of what I expected because this is something that I was just taught growing up uh, that I just kind of believed, and this seems to be just the common belief held amongst Christians is that there's the global universal flood and that there was no death before the fall. And so joining me to discuss those two issues is Krista Bontrager. She's a theologian and a former homeschool mom. Uh, she is the director of the scholar community at Reasons to Believe. She earned her BA in communications from Biola University, master's of arts degree in theology from, and Bible exposition from Talbot School of Theology. Uh, her passion lies in teaching people Christianity's great truths. She oversees the recruitment and training of RTV Scholar Community, the Visiting Scholar Program, as well as courses offered at the Reasons Institute. Uh, she's written The Bigger Picture on Creation, a Bible Small Group Study, as well as a Psalm 104, In Wisdom You Make Them All, as well as contributing articles, videos, and podcasts, and speaking at conferences. And I had the privilege of taking some classes at the Reasons Institute, where she was the instructor for those classes as well. So it's a privilege to have Krista Bontrager join me on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, so over the next two episodes, we're going to take our time and we're going to discuss these two issues. Uh, I want to start off by discussing uh, the flood. Now, before we get into that, uh, a little bit of background about you. So you, you went to Biola, which is awesome. I just graduated with my master's from Talbot School of Theology as well in Christian apologetics. Um, but you went to Biola. How did you find yourself doing theology and Bible exposition to now working uh, at a science apologetics ministry like Reasons to Believe? Yeah, that's such a great story. Um, uh, my senior year at Biola, I was a film and television major, and I took a class called God's Person and Word. And, you know, you, you sometimes have a teacher that really makes an impact in your life. And in that class, it just changed the whole trajectory of my life. I thought I was going to have this great career in filmmaking and television and Christian media. And I fell in love with theology. And so I enrolled at Talbot right after I graduated with my undergrad. I just went right into graduate school. And I really didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> uh, I had no real Bible background at that point. I remember sitting in the first couple of classes in graduate school thinking, I have no idea what we're even talking about, but I'm having a good time. <laughs> and uh, started wading into it deeper. And a couple of my professors just noticed that I had some good kind of intuitions about theology, and they encouraged me to consider a career in theology, and I didn't even really know what that meant at that time, but they kind of guided me toward a pathway of a career in theology, and, you know, then I had a whole internal conversation of, can a woman be a theologian, and what does that even mean? That, that would make another great conversation sometime, but yeah. uh, that was a journey for me as I went through graduate school. 
and uh, started teaching. I started as an adjunct professor when I was only 27 years old. Wow. I taught theology classes for a few years at Biola. I had a great time. And then I uh, became pregnant with our oldest daughter, Emily. And uh, my career of to become a professional theologian was put a little bit on hold while I became a mom. And it was a wonderful season. And then I came to work at Reasons to Believe because my friend Ken Samples was um, already on staff here, and he invited me to come join him on staff. And I've done a variety of things while I've been here using both my media background as well as my theology education. So I did not come into the conversation of science apologetics uh, because I was really interested in science. Um, I didn't even really know who Hugh Ross was when (laughs) I started working at Reasons to Believe. I was vaguely familiar with him but didn't really know who he was. And so it's been a journey for me. It's almost been a second seminary education as I've worked um, to learn all of these wonderful topics and the questions you're posing today. Absolutely. And you have the chance of working with some incredible scholars. Uh, You mentioned Hugh Ross being one. Uh, You know, Fazrana is there, A.J. Burnett, uh, and then Robert, sorry, A.J. Roberts. And then, um, but uh, I've had uh, Jeff Swearing on my show twice. Uh, discussing Big Bang cosmology and evangelism and science and faith, and also uh, Ken Samples as a professor at Talbot, uh, my professor of logic classes, and then he came in and did, did two parts on logic as well. So it's just been great to take classes from Reasons to Believe, to be able to learn from Hugh Ross as well, as well as just uh, to yeah, see the amazing scholars that you have the chance of working with. So that's great. Now, so how long have you been involved in science apologetics? I've been at Reasons to Believe for 19 and a half years. Wow. Uh, Fuzz, Rana, and I started within a few months of each other, and um, I started here in my 20s, and now I'm well into my 40s, (laughs) and uh, it's just been a a very high honor to work with such men and and colleagues of such high caliber. I think that in Christian ministry, it's very rare that you can say about a colleague that you've worked and labored with for so long and for so closely to say that you work with people who are truly um, the same behind closed doors as they are in public and they really have Christ-like character. And um, we've walked a lot of roads together here at Reasons to Believe, and I'm just super honored to still be here and for all that I've learned in this journey with these great thinkers. Yeah. Now, Reasons to Believe is is uh, maybe you could say kind of in the middle uh, of a discussion because in the sense that it kind of gets attacks from the secular side uh, in believing in creationism, but then it also receives tax from the kind of the young earth side uh, that it holds to an old earth. Uh, kind of what is that like trying to kind of, I don't know, maybe stand on a, a position that is, is less, in a, you know, road less traveled yeah. uh, and kind of receive attacks from both sides. Yeah. And I think that so much of the conversation we have internally here is how do we stay in our lane? Because it would be so easy for us to get distracted by um, some Christians who kind of take a pretty strong difference of opinion with us about the age of the earth. And then on the other side, Uh, people who are not Christians taking issue with our belief. And I think that um, sometimes Christians think that we don't take the Bible seriously, and that's their concern. 
whereas non-Christians tend to think we don't take the science seriously, Mm -hmm. and that's their concern. And we are trying to find this third way, this this path of uh, taking uh, science seriously, but also having high regard for Scripture that is consistent with the historical uh, Christian faith and well inside of Orthodox Christianity. And so what has that been like, you know, in your years at Reasons to Believe of of how have you seen the understanding of, of and faith of believers deepen when they are able to join science and theology together? Very typical scenario that happens when uh, people encounter Reasons to Believe for the first time is something along the lines of, I've had this this lingering concern in the back of my mind about scientific questions or about the problem of evil. And then they find our ministry and then there's a sense of freedom that they are able to walk into where they don't have to jettison their faith. They can still have a very high regard for scripture as being the error-free word of God, but then they can walk in their calling and their gifting from God in science and their interest in science. And uh, they find peace. And that is a very fulfilling kingdom calling for us to be able to bring that sense of peace to uh, the Lord's people. It it really is a, a high honor to be able to do that. Awesome. Well, I want to jump into our conversation today because I know we have a lot to discuss when it comes to these two issues. Uh, And so as we jump in, I want to remind those that are listening, wherever you're listening on, uh, this is a great time. You can send in those questions, uh, your comments. I'd love to hear what you think, as well as you have the opportunity to interact with me and and figure out who I'm going to be interviewing in the future. Send in your questions so they can be asked on the show as well. But you can do so uh, by email at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Send them in at Facebook at coffeehousequestions.com, uh, or sorry, facebook.com slash coffeehousequestions, or on Instagram or Twitter, and the ad there is at ryanpolly3, or text message at 719-914-989-6927. All right, so jumping into our first thing that we're going to discuss, and that is the flood. Was it global? Was it local? How do we know? What does the Bible say? What does science say? Uh, first of all, maybe... W- why is this an issue? Uh, why should we even have a show where we discuss, is the flood global or local? I think that's such a great question because, and I think the reason this matters is because we as Christians think that the Bible matters. And this is really a question of, does do the early chapters of Genesis contain history or are they some other type of literature? Are they an example of perhaps an ancient Near Eastern creation mythology. And I think that that is a very important question. The, the, the question of what are Genesis chapters 1 through 11? What kind of literature are those? What's the genre or the type of literature? Pretty much all biblical scholars agree, even liberal scholars will tell you that from Genesis 12 forward, we're dealing with history. Mm-hmm. It seems that, you know, Abraham was a real hi- historical person. He's in the right historical context and setting. Um, but when we're dealing with Genesis chapters 1 through 11, there's a big question there of what type of literature is this? How ought this to be understood? And are these chapters describing real historical events? Or is this some type of creation mythology? And I think that's a very important question for Christians to begin to to think about and to wrestle through. 
And so how, how do we wrestle through those things of, of how do we approach scripture and science together? Do we, does one outweigh the other? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that a couple of things to keep in mind is that my position and the position of reasons to believe is that there's actually two authors of scripture. And so when we talk about how do we approach scripture, how do we interpret it? We always want to look for what did the author mean? We're not looking for what does it mean to me? Yeah. Rather, we're looking for what does it mean? And that's a very different question. Yep. And so we want to ask, what did the author mean when he said this? But we always have to keep in mind as well that there is actually two authors to Scripture. There's the human author, and then there's the, the Holy Spirit. There's God superintending that process. And so when we think about Scripture, here, here's how I think about bringing science and scripture together. Um, it says in Psalm 19 that God has revealed himself two ways. He's revealed himself through nature. That's Psalm 19 verses one to six and through scripture. Um, and that's kind of the second half of Psalm 19. And Romans one touches on this as well. And so when I think about these two revelations of God, I look for um, areas that each of these revelations speaks to. So, for example, um, if I want to know about Jupiter, the planet Jupiter, I'm not going to look in the Bible for that because the Bible doesn't have anything to tell me necessarily about Jupiter. But God has created humans in the image of God, and we have the freedom and the curiosity that he's given us to go out and explore the natural world. And so we can do that. We can go out into the general revelation and look into Jupiter, find out all about Jupiter, explore that. We can look into things like quarks and leptons and atoms and all of these sorts of things. And we can look at that as being a reliable revelation. But if I want to know how to be reconciled to a holy God, how do I get into the presence of God? That's where I have to go to special revelation. I have to yeah. go to the Bible. I'm not going to get that in general revelation. But then there's these few areas where these two revelations touch and where they overlap with each other. Things like the first humans, the origin of humanity. Uh, the Bible tells us about Adam and Eve. Well, science tells us about something about where the first humans came from. And where those revelations begin to, to overlap, that's where Christian theologians and scientists have to do the hard work. Yeah. Of of integration. And that really pertains to huge questions related to Genesis 1 through 11 and all of those origins issues. Yeah. And so that's one of those issues. And that's probably why we're discussing it. No one has issue when science talks about Jupiter or our solar system and how that works. And, or, you know, we maybe debate theology when it comes to the, you know, doctrine of Christ and that sort of stuff. But, but here's a couple big issues, you know, with the origin of the universe and how old is it? Uh, where the Bible seems to be clear, and then science is saying what seems to be something different. Uh, but then this one with the flood. Now, you know, in Genesis, you know, I think why people believe what they do. Genesis 7 talks about the flood. And just to kind of read little parts of Genesis 7 here, starting verse 17, it says, The flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the face of the waters. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. 
all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land whose nostrils was breath, the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing uh, that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. Now, it seems very clear. There's a lot of alls and everythings. And so even, uh, you know, Claudia commented on Facebook and had the question, uh, why would anyone think the flood was anything but global? The Bible says he blotted out every living thing that he made. And so what was the extent of the flood? It seems very clear from scripture. Yeah. And I think that if you read it in the English translation, just like you did just now, yes, I agree. It just seems super clear that it covered the whole, as it says there in the translation you just read, the whole earth. And when we think of the whole earth, we think obviously of the whole planet. Um, but when we get into Hebrew, uh, we have to keep in mind that things might not be as clear and that the word earth, the translators are actually giving us an interpretation there. They're interpreting the word Eretz, which is in Hebrew, the word that can mean, it just means generically, it means land. And that can be any size of land. It could be a piece of land like Reasons to Believe sits on a piece of land. It's a small piece of property. Um, it could be a country, a whole land. It could be a region, or it could mean the entire planet and anything in between. So the question is, is what definition of Eretz, or in this place, in, in this situation, the whole earth, Kol Ha Eretz, uh, what is meant by that phrase? And the, the translators have interpreted that to mean the whole planet, the whole earth. They, they've repeated that several times, which gives definitely the impression that we are talking, in fact, about the whole, the whole planet earth. Okay. However, if the word Eretz means the whole region, which is an alternative definition, then nothing is jettisoned, nothing is harmed in the, the biblical interpretation. Um, it would just mean the whole region or the whole area was covered and that all of the high mountains in that area were covered. So, so much of our, our, the picture in our mind that happens um, with the flood, it really revolves around that word earth and the use of that word earth, because that connotes to us the whole planet. Yeah. Um, now, we have a couple of clues from other places in the Old Testament that might give us some insight into how this phrase, kol ha-eretz, the whole land or the whole earth, depending on which of those we choose, uh, the same phrase is used later in the book of Genesis. So it's the same book, um, but it's talking about Joseph. And it says that the whole world or the whole earth or the whole region came to Joseph to receive food during the famine. Now, the question is, is which of those interpretations ought we pick? Nobody thinks that um, the biblical uh, reliability is undermined if we think that uh, if if we're not suggesting 
that the Chinese came over the Himalayas and came down into Egypt to get food from Joseph, or that the, uh, the original native people in South Africa or in Australia came up to Egypt, or that the Native Americans came back across the Bering Strait and came to find Joseph in Egypt to get, to get food. We know that famines are a regional problem. And so when it says the whole earth came to Joseph, it's perfectly consistent to say everyone in that region, the whole land, in that area, everyone knows what that means. Similar, um, it says about with the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Kings, it talks about how the whole world came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, to my knowledge, nobody thinks that um, the Native Americans came to hear the wisdom of Solomon or, again, you know, people up from the Arctic Circle came down to hear the wisdom of Solomon. It's just sort of understood that in that known area, that known region, people that heard of Solomon's reputation came to hear from him. So, again, same phrase, Kolha Eretz, used in other contexts. So I think it's perfectly possible that in Genesis 7, it could be regionally limited. Now, do you know of whether or not, you know, because people have divided up the book of Genesis and kind of say, you know, from 12 on or so, it's history. Before that, you know, there's that debate. Uh, Is the Eretz used in one through eight differently? Um, Is that a possibility versus in the second half of Genesis that is kind of a maybe a different type of genre? It's possible. Um, I personally, we hold to a view at Reasons to Believe that Genesis 1 through 11 is history. Okay. And that all of Genesis is holding together as a historical account. And so from our viewpoint, um, because we view it as history, I would say that the usage is the same throughout the book of Genesis. And I think that Genesis as a literary unit, um, as a structure, there's some that's part of my case to say that it would be consistent throughout the whole book. But if you would hold to a view where Genesis 1 through 11 is not history, then possibly there could be a different definition. But I certainly think it's within even a historical definition to say that it's regionally limited. Now, there are some other biblical evidences that we could get into along those lines. All right. So kind of uh, moving on a little bit now, when it comes to um, kind of the flood waters, uh, does Reasons to Believe have a view on kind of where do they come from? Uh, do, do they have an official view on local versus global? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Dr. He Ross, who is the founder of Reasons to Believe, advocates a position that he calls the universal flood model. And so in that model, the the flood waters are limited in geography to roughly the Mesopotamian region, maybe going a little bit into east, northeastern Africa area, but, but mostly um, in the Mesopotamian uh, region, maybe up into Turkey a little bit, but fairly limited in scope. Okay. And, but Hugh Ross also holds the, the position that all of humanity was wiped out during the flood. So what that would require then is that human the flood would have to be early enough 
that humanity had not yet migrated out of the Mesopotamian northeastern Africa region so that they would have been entirely wiped out. Now, among old earth creationists, um, there's some diversity there as to whether or not the, the waters were regionally limited and also the, that the, the impact was regionally limited. Maybe humans had already migrated out of that area, so only a limited number of humans were affected by the flood. So that would be kind of a, a second position within the old earth creation model. Okay. Yeah, I have a quote here from Hiros where he did talk about kind of that idea you just mentioned, the, the universal but not global, right. uh, where he says any flood that exterminates all human beings, all the soulish animals with whom they have contact, and all their material possessions except those on Noah's Ark would be universal and would achieve God's purpose in pouring out judgment. So if God's, it seems like what he's saying is there is what God's purpose of the flood is to pour out judgment on humans and so to have a universal flood, you simply have to wipe out the humans and the animals that uh, were kind of cursed by that sin, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, the picture that we get of the pre-flood world is, especially in Genesis chapter 5, when it's describing Lamech and his descendants, you know, that it was a pretty violent culture. And that Hughes, Hugh Ross's theory about that is that violent humans can actually have a, a violent effect on the animals around them. I don't know if you've ever encountered, you know, a, a dog who's been abused by an abusive human. And if they're not tended well, um, that dog can actually become abusive and violent toward others. And so there's this, this relationship that humans have with higher ordered soulish type animals, animals that have mind, will, and emotions, and what Hugh's position is, is that those animals had to be wiped out in the flood because they had been affected by the violence that they had seen and experienced from the humans around them. So that might kind of be a response to another question I had come in from a listener. Uh, Kent wrote in on Facebook and said, well, if the flood uh, was not worldwide, why build a boat so large for the animals? Why not just send them to a safer part of the world? I've also heard other people make a similar thing of why didn't, you know, Noah just walk over the mountains? Uh, you know, God just sent him over there rather than spending all the time building the ark. Yeah, I think that Hugh's, Hugh's position and the position of the reasons to believe team here would be that uh, because judgment needed to come to the humans that were there and to their animals because they had been um, harmed in, in a violent way by the humans. Now, the question of whether or not uh, Mos or, um, Noah could have just gone to another region, that's certainly possible. But I think that the word picture that we get from the book of Peter in the New Testament of what God was trying to do there is that by building the ark, it becomes like this, this picture of salvation as an Old Testament picture that is a hint or a type or a shadow of the salvation that will come in the end. That when God brings his judgment at the end times, God's people will be spared. They will be kept safe from that judgment. And part of our hope um, in Second Peter chapter 3, see the, the foundation of our hope 
that we will be spared judgment in the future is that is the historical accuracy and the reliability of the Noah story. Just as God preserved Noah when his when God's judgment was raining down, so also he will preserve us in that last day. Well, we are getting so close to being out of time already. We are going to have to kind of shift over and, and, and push some of the, uh, the scientific evidence for the whether the flood was local or global into part two. Um, also discussing a little bit uh, of where do the waters come from? Where do they go? Uh, those are going to be some of those things that we're going to have to push into part two when we also discuss uh, death before the fall. And so um, let me just, uh, I have to stop it right here. We're out of time. But uh, Krista, thank you so much for joining me in this first part, discussing a, a very, to me, very interesting uh, issue when it comes to kind of an in-house debate between Christians, whether the flood was global or local. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. And for all of you listening, I hope that you enjoyed my first part of the discussion with Krista Bontrager from Reasons to Believe. I want to encourage you to go to reasons.org to check out more of the resources that Reasons to Believe offers. You can also find the work that Krista does at theologymom.com. So go check out those two great resources. Hope you enjoyed the show today. If you enjoyed it, share it with your friends and your family. Help them to enjoy it as well. Have an awesome rest of your day. God bless. Sip coffee. Think deeply. This is Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly. Won't hesitate to follow your love